Welcome to Reductio. Reductio is a podcast about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin, brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Warning, I'm not going to tame down some of the scary elements in this episode, and so it's possible there'd be some scary moments for younger and more sensitive listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Let's call our subject James. When James was growing up, he had countless strange experiences. Experiences that honestly give me the chills every time he describes them to me. His older sister had a few experiences too, you'll hear a bit from her. They grew up in a lovely house in central Chico. Originally, it was just a really small house. We lived in a very tiny house that had a sort of square-shaped hallway. Everyone's bedrooms were really close to each other and connected uh, in this tiny little like, square hallway. With four doors on each wall leading into bedrooms and bathrooms and living rooms. I've been to this house. It's a funny little hallway, but fairly nondescript. I, for one, haven't had any strange feelings in this part of the house. All the experiences they describe center on this hallway or one particular room off of this hallway. And so at night, everyone would close all the doors, and then you just have this enclosed sort of square hallway. And I would leave my door open, obviously, because I was terrified to close my door. And so it was just my door open into this hallway, and there was kind of a dimmable light up in the center. James's sister, let's call her Diane, her experiences were fairly benign, but a little unsettling. I remember waking up and being very alert and seeing a young girl sort of skipping around in a circular formation in the center of the hallway and it going on for maybe a minute at most, but like too long. (laughs) Too long to feel like I could blink and get out of it, but not scary in the least. Just very sort of serene and more, you know, my natural reaction was to wonder why there was a young girl skipping around in the center of our house. The second was uh, maybe a man in his 30s, and he was on just a short step stool and he was changing the light in the hallway. So he was stepping up on the stool and unscrewing and replacing the light. And again, like a quick, maybe 30 seconds memory of that. Not scared at all. A guy changing a light bulb, a girl skipping in circles, nothing that would make one feel violated or watched or disturbed really. Her experiences are odd. They are of what seem to be ghosts. And so they're not mundane everyday experiences, but they're not the kinds of experiences that might motivate you to yell at the screen as you watch a horror movie. Move out, that house ain't safe! Things were different for James, though. I'm just glad I didn't have his experiences. James began having paranormal experiences at about the same age as Diane. Perhaps this is no coincidence. Perhaps children reach a critical age where they're more tuned into the paranormal. I remember uh, almost every single night at some point throughout the night where I would sleep, we would leave the door open so we and we would have the hallway light on just a little bit. But even from a really early age, at some point in the night, I would hear what would sound like footsteps. Because we had uh, the 
the floor in the hallway was all hardwood floor. Um, and I would hear footsteps that would pace from pretty much the bathroom all the way into my parents' room. And it would just pace back and forth for a long time. And it always sounded like somewhere around like a six foot size like person. And I could always tell because it sounded very similar to my father's footsteps. But I never once saw my father during any of this time pacing back and forth through the hallway. In fact, I could hear him snoring as this is going on. Our rooms are so close to each other. As James got older, the experiences changed. And as I got older, the experience started changing bit by bit. In the very beginning, what would happen was I would hear what would sound like a person pacing from the bathroom into my parents' room through that hallway, which is a straight line between those two rooms. Eventually, after it would do that for what maybe felt like 30 minutes to an hour, um, it would stop in the middle of the hallway. Um, and I could just feel almost like a presence kind of shifting towards uh, the room that I would stay in. But these experiences changed over time. And over time, um, as it kept changing, after it would stop, um, I could feel it just kind of shift towards my room and like come to the door frame of my room. And there would just be this figure standing in the doorway. It probably wasn't until I was a teenager uh, that it would actually enter into my room. And then from that point on, it would spend every single night in my room growing up. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering what these experiences are like. James doesn't describe a visual element, just a sort of felt presence along with a sound. Really young, when it was in the hallway, there was no visual at all. It was just kind of a repeating sound and like presence. Like I could feel you know, colder temperature um, and a lot of pressure kind of like on my chest area as if something, someone was like pressing down on my chest. So now there's a tactile element to the experience as well, but then some visuals get added into the mix. For the most part, a lot of the visual experience is a tall six to seven foot long, very thin shadow, very humanoid, very long arms and limbs and a lot of time too from a lot of my memories is I would have a fan in my room too that was very iffy on whether it wanted to work or not and a lot of times when I would see this shadow being it would be standing behind that fan facing towards me as I slept. As James's experience became visual they began to disturb him more and it was just such a creepy experience and I never wanted to like face inwards to my room that um, a lot of times, especially when I would start to like be able to see it in my room, I would just kind of roll over and face the ball as I slept every night. But then what would eventually happen is I could hear it walk over to my bedside and it would clean. It was so, uh, I cannot describe really how big and lengthy this thing was, but it would lean over my bed, kind of double over 
and I can kind of just see like a head like watching me as I would face away from it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was all sorts of unnerving and not fun nights for me growing up. So the topic today is ghosts. What are they? How do they fit into the world? What what does it mean for them to exist? And what sort of evidence do we have that they in fact exist? What how do we treat experiences like those of James and Diane? I want to explore this topic in a couple of different ways. The first we just did, some experiences that people have had that seem to have paranormal explanations. Next, we'll talk psychology. What is happening in the mind of a person undergoing a paranormal experience, according to psychologists, and maybe what's happening in the the brain and the body? Then we'll talk epistemology, or theorizing about evidence and knowledge. What sort of epistemological problem What sort of problem for knowledge and justification of belief do ghost experiences and reports of ghost experiences present for us? Then we'll talk metaphysics or theorizing about what sorts of things there are and how they fit together. What actually are ghosts? What sorts of things are they and how do they interact with the physical world? Let's take a quick break and then we'll discuss a bit about the psychology of ghost encounters. During this break, I wanted to highlight a another podcast that I'm a fan of, the Pan Psycast. Uh, it's a play on the philosophical theory of being a panpsychist means that you think there's basically mind or consciousness throughout the universe, um, every, everywhere. Anyways, this is a group of four fellows, and then they occasionally have guests on, but then they just dis- discuss uh, different philosophical traditions or philosophers or arguments, and um, it's fun to listen to. They They clearly really enjoy philosophy and they really enjoy talking with one another and that's part of what makes it fun um so uh check it out and they they definitely have some some insight into the stuff they're they're talking about i learned a lot about taoism by uh listening to their their taoism segment so um check that out I talked with a social psychologist from Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. My name is Frank McAndrew. I'm a psychology professor at Knox College. Yeah, in addition, I'm a social psychologist, but in addition to the research and teaching that I do, uh, I've become something of a science writer and an essayist, and I write a blog for Psychology Today magazine, among other things. Professor McAndrew has done a bit of research and writing on paranormal experiences and creepiness, which is why I wanted to talk with him. Fun fact, we talked the week my son was born, so his was one of the last interviews I did before becoming a father. So anyways, my first question was, why do people see ghosts? What might be going on in someone's mind from a psychological perspective to explain paranormal experiences? Well, I think paranormal experiences can happen for a lot of different reasons. So there's not just one cut and dried answer. This is why all people see ghosts. Okay, fair enough. As with most everything else in life, there are different reasons this happens. The first thing that has to happen, I think, is you have to believe in ghosts. 
Wait, that's surprising. We must already believe in ghosts before we have ghost experiences? Because when you are seeing a ghost, what you're usually doing is resolving some kind of ambiguity. If you're walking around in a spooky old house or you're in a cemetery late at night or wherever it it might be, you're going to hear sounds. There are going to be things that are not quite clear when you're looking at them. And so we don't like ambiguity. We want to resolve that any way we can. Well, if one of your possible solutions to that is that there's a ghost nearby, you start processing information that might confirm that. Yes, 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 it's looking more and more like a ghost. If you're a person that dismisses this as a possibility uh, right away, even if it really is a ghost, you're not going to perceive it that way because you don't believe that's a possible explanation. At this point, the philosopher in mind and me has all sorts of questions. This is a very intellectual way of describing the process. Do our explicit beliefs make that big of a difference to our experiences? If so, then how do you explain the apparent phenomenon of people who didn't believe in ghosts until they had a paranormal experience? I dare say there are a couple such examples in the Snap Judgment podcast series Spooked. Uh, If you haven't listened to that, you should check it out. It's pretty interesting. Is there this much cognitive penetration in the basic experience of seeing a ghost? Does the intellectual mind determine the phenomenological experience this much? Anyways, I'll set these questions aside and let the nice psychologist speak. My approach to this, I don't really study ghosts and belief in ghosts per se. I study creepiness and what creeps people out. And sort of by accident, because when people type creepy into a Google search, my name comes up. Uh, If you type handsome or intelligent, no, nothing. So how do most ghost experiences come about? What explains them psychologically? We will always uh, resolve ambiguity in the direction of being cautious. Um, Evolutionary psychologists talk about something called agent detection mechanisms. So if you think about what we had to do to be successful when we were evolving, if you were walking around in the forest late at night and there were some bushes rustling, well... It could be something innocent, right? It's just a rabbit, it's the wind, or it could be a predator or an enemy. And if you were going to make a bad decision, you had to make the bad decision in the cautious way. Because if you decide, well, it's probably just a rabbit, but then it isn't, you're toast. On the other hand, if you decide maybe there's something to worry about here, and then it turns out it is just the wind, well, you haven't really lost anything. According to evolutionary theory, if something protects us with minimal cost, then it will contribute to fitness, to our ability to survive and reproduce. So we can imagine that those features will be more likely to come about than features that either cost more or don't make us more likely to survive and reproduce. Professor McAndrew here is applying that same framework to the feature of resolving ambiguous perceptions, the rustling leaves, the noise of the wind, the sound or sight at the periphery of your visual field, Resolving these ambiguous perceptions in favor of a threatening presence. What do we lose? Well, just a little bit of energy expelled from running away. No big deal. We can replenish that easily. What do we lose if we resolved the ambiguity in the other way, if we assumed that there was no danger there? Well, we might get eaten by a mountain lion, and that would be bad. So we're descended from people who always thought about the worst possible scenario in ambiguous situations. Well, if you're a believer in ghosts and you're in a place where you think ghosts might be, that might be your worst case scenario 
default option. That's the thing you will go to right away. Couple this with a religious background that encourages a belief in ghosts, and you've got an experience as of a ghost. Sure. Yeah, your religion plays a big part in who you think you're seeing when you run into a ghost. And uh, there are some religions, like voodoo, for example, where ghosts are kind of right at the heart of religion. And there are other religions that they allow for ghosts, but they're not a central part of it. I asked Professor McAndrew to elaborate on this a little bit. Well, first of all, there are many different types of ghosts out there, right? There are, there are ghosts that are the spirits of actual human beings that once lived. And they may even resemble what these people look like in life. Think of Jacob Marley from The Christmas Carol or somebody like that. Um, but then you've got other things like poltergeists, which aren't really the souls or spirits of individuals. They're more like supernatural forces that just sort of cause trouble. And some religions, um, okay, so Protestants don't have a whole lot to say about ghosts one way or the other. Catholics have a long tradition of allowing for ghosts. Uh, the church discourages you from trying to contact them or conjure them up. But uh, Catholics have long believed that uh, God may allow somebody to leave purgatory for a while to come back to earth to visit with people. And so um, for a Catholic, if you do encounter a ghost, it's most likely the spirit of somebody that you once knew. On the other hand, uh, some religions like um, Muslims, for example, they don't believe that the spirits of dead people can come back to earth. So if they encounter a ghost, they think it's a, a demon or some sort of other being that's there probably to cause trouble, but it's not the soul of a dead person. So yeah, uh, your worldview dictates what you think you're seeing when you run into a ghost. Absolutely. I also talked with philosopher Casey Smith about paranormal experiences. Hi there, my name is, uh, is Casey Smith. I, uh, I teach philosophy at San Jose State University in Illinois College in the Bay Area. I have an interest in normative epistemology, so I'm less concerned with exactly defining what knowledge is and, and more concerned with how do we just practically get to be better reasoners? What kind of advice do I need to give people to get them to believe more true things and fewer false things? Uh, very specifically, I'm interested in the nature of expertise as it pertains to this question. So how do we figure out who the experts are? Uh, in which situations do we default to their judgment? And um, how do we know who to trust? We focused on some of the psychology surrounding these phenomena that Casey was familiar with. We played a little game to kick things off. You can play along too. Just, just try not to cheat. Try to write down what you've actually remembered. So if you're okay with it, I'd kind of like to start with a, uh, a memory test. So what I want you to do is just uh, make sure you have some way to write this down. And then I'm going to say a bunch of words to you. And you do your best to remember as many of them as you can, and when I finish the list, uh, write down all the words you remember hearing. Okay, let's give it a shot. Bed, rest, awake, tired, dream, wake, snooze, blanket, doze, slumber, snore, nap, peace, yawn, Drowsy. Okay, take a minute and write down what you can remember.
So did you remember bed? Okay, rest. What about snooze? Did you get sleep? Well, the interesting thing about that one is that I never actually said the word sleep. This is part of a classic psychological study called, uh, called the DRM paradigm, the Dees, Rodinger, McDermott paradigm that the, those three researchers uh, helped to discover where, uh, as, as it looks like you've gathered, what we, what we tend to do is remember things that are thematically linked to the list and then remember that, that particular word. Asleep in this case is called a lure in the terminology. Well, the reason I've started with this is that this is one particular example of what's, uh, what in psychology is called a schematic error. And uh, most of the time they relate to errors in memory. But, it, you know, it, it will get there in a second, but eventually it leads to, a, I think, one particular explanation for ghost encounters. And one of the takeaways here is that memory isn't like a tape recorder. It's not like the tools I use to produce this podcast or film my baby when he crawls for the first time. Memory isn't simply a repository or a recorder, it's constructive. So we usually think about our memories as being records. Every time that we see something or hear something, what we think we're doing is we're taking a picture or recording a little bit of video and audio, and then later we're, we're playing the video back. And that's what happens when we recall something in our memory. Well. A lot of the research that's been done on memory, and I'm specifically thinking about like the, the research done by Elizabeth Loftus over you know a few decades now, um, instead proposes that the, the way our memory works is that it's fundamentally constructive. By that, she means that what we tend to do is latch on to a particular pattern we recognize, a certain schema uh, in the uh, in the literature, and then when we see something fits that pattern that we notice, we'll retain that information that it fits the pattern and then maybe one or two little details. And then what we think what we're doing is playing back the tape, so to speak. Instead, we're actually creating a memory, a brand new memory from the tiny bits of information that we ended up storing. This is so much more efficient when you think about it than a video recorder. We can record tiny bits of salient information in our brains rather than full-on Technicolor 4K video files. Then we can have a general capacity to construct or simulate sensory experiences, our imaginations, and that general capacity can reconstruct memories on the fly from smaller bits of information. Sounds like a good system, but it does have its downsides. We are not altogether that great at remembering all the details. We remember what is salient to us, and we reconstruct the rest. Our memories are therefore fairly unreliable representations of past events. So, for example, if you look at a picture of a kitchen, and then later on you're asked to recall details about that kitchen, people overwhelmingly and mistakenly remember seeing a refrigerator in that kitchen because that's the sort of thing that we were used to seeing in kitchens. And so when we saw it initially, we'll remember some details like black and white tile floors and maybe like a, a retro or modern or, or you know, um, uh, style, maybe some of the features about the, you know, the color and, and shapes present in the kitchen. But then most of all we'll remember is it fits this kind of pattern, this certain schema of kitchen. And so when we're asked to recall things about it later, We'll just add in all that other kitchen stuff. 
because that sort of comes along for free. We can actually see the same thing happening when someone asks a leading question. If you ask, like, for example, how short was a robber that you, uh, that you saw at a, uh, at a crime scene, we'll automatically throw in stuff about them being short because that's what's implied in the question. That's why you have to be very careful about those during, uh, during trials. Uh, it's connected to the Mandela effect. Uh, this thing's become very, very popular on the internet where people will remember things in, uh, in the same incorrect way. Those are almost always the same kind of schematic error. Those schema that we use as tools to reconstruct the world around us are great in that a lot comes for free. You imagine a kitchen and you get a fridge for free and a dish towels for free and a sink for free. No need to remember all those each time you have an experience in a kitchen. Those are background details. They're not salient and so they don't need to be recorded. Again, this is an efficient system, right? So what does all this have to do with ghosts? Well, schematic errors are one potential explanation for at least some ghost encounters. Sometimes when we're around someone like a partner for a long time, that person becomes part of our schema. We are having breakfast at the table and we fully expect that our partner is sitting next to us because this is what they've done every morning for the last 10 years. Most relevant to ghost stories, though, I think is probably these uh, these widow studies. Grieving individuals who've lost a loved one, uh, about half of widowed individuals report an experience or a visit of some sort from the recently deceased. And this is most likely to occur if this other person was a significant part of your everyday life and if you've kind of locked yourself up in isolation since that individual's death. It was in The Hallucinations of Widowhood in uh, by, by Reese in, in 1971. Although there have been a lot of other bits of research that have had a, had a very, very similar um, kind of experimental setup. Where what you do is you, you ask widows and widowers, uh, people who have been together with the same person for you know, decades, sometimes, you know, like 50 years or more, and then tragically that partner of theirs passes away. You are, it, you know, somewhere around 50% likely, uh, if you're the widow or widower in that situation, in the following weeks, to have a major and distinct hallucinatory event where you remember seeing, hearing them, you know, have the impression that they're touching you, um, any, any of the five classical senses. And uh, again, this seems to be a healthy thing. It seems to be part of the bereavement process. Uh, the visitor is not there to scare you. It's, it's kind of a reassuring reconnection of sorts. And we can actually understand why something like this happens in terms of these kinds of schematic errors. So what we get really, really used to when we're with someone for a very, very long time is, uh, you know, the sound of their voice. Um, various other kinds of sensory information we have that, that lets us know that they're nearby. And that becomes infused in all of our experiences, especially around familiar places. So when that person is gone, everything about the way we're used to retaining these memories and, and the thing that's sort of coloring all of our experiences, that thing is still there, that schema that we've developed. And so you should almost be surprised if you don't still end up seeing or hearing that person afterwards. And I know this, there are lots of different types of ghost encounter reports that people are going to have that don't fit this model at all. And I think the ones that do 
are some combination of you know the priming effect because you're told there's going to be one or it's confirmation bias because you know the the, the data is going to be ambiguous and you decide to pick out you know the thing that, that matches the thing that you're looking for. But I think one particular interesting kind uh, is covered by this idea of a schematic error. And I think the really important thing about this is that, oh, when I'm, when I'm teaching this in my classes, I, I point out that 8% of general adults experience hallucinations, but about 30% of college students do. This is all just to say that experiencing a hallucination is, is not all that unusual, and it's something that even like neurotypical people do. It's just a regular part of life. And so what we don't want to do in this case, what would be, would be in addition to being disrespectful, I, I think it just doesn't match our, our best scientific research, is to tell these people that like they're lying or that's not really what they saw. I think, I think virtually everyone that reports to seeing or hearing a ghost does see or hear a ghost. It just turns out in certain very predictable ways that doesn't tend to be really good evidence for there being a ghost there. There are certain... Uh, systematic ways that we know our senses will deceive us, and these kinds of schematic errors are one of them. So one potential explanation for ghost experiences is schematic errors. It probably won't explain every type of ghost experience. Okay, but what's going on biologically? What is happening in the brain and body when someone has a ghost experience? Frank McAndrew. There's some really interesting biological stuff going on, uh, and I'm a little out of my depth to talk about it in too great of detail. But uh, in some research with uh, epileptics, they've discovered that if you stimulate certain brain regions where the parietal and temporal lobes come together, you give people this sense of what's called a sensed presence. They, they feel the presence of another being of some sort. And uh, so there's something going on with brain chemistry that can prompt these kinds of experiences. This sounds a lot like the presence in James's hallway that slowly, over a number of years, materialized into a figure that would come into his room. Eventually, James would feel this presence looming over him. In the end, there were visual experiences associated with this figure. But at first, it was just an auditory experience of footsteps and a felt presence. Was this region of James's brain activated somehow? If we assume that he wasn't in fact experiencing a ghost, then we might wonder whether there's some sort of uh, seizure or some sort of lesion or cyst right at the region where the temporal and parietal lobes meet. And interestingly enough, the uh, brain activity that's occurring in schizophrenia is in almost exactly the same place that I described earlier, where if you stimulate it, you can get people to experience the sense presence. So I think there is some reason to think there's a connection there. I, I certainly don't know enough about it to make any firm statements about that. So I'm certainly not suggesting here that James has schizophrenic tendencies, but generally the link between schizoid disorders and hallucinations cannot be ignored. So one possible explanation is that there's something schizoid-like happening in the brains of people who have paranormal experiences. Conceivable. Conceivable. Or maybe there was nothing abnormal there in James's brain at all. Maybe he was in fact experiencing something out there in the hallway and later there in his room. I'm not ready to make any sort of conclusion about any of this. Uh, something I've written about quite a bit is something called the sense presence. Uh, another way in which people see ghosts is if you are in an extreme stressful environment, 
usually alone. People who are polar explorers, mountain climbers, solitary sailors who are out in the ocean alone in these little boats uh, often have this very vivid encounter with a spiritual presence of some sort. And it's usually benign. It's usually there to be supportive and helpful. Some people have an actual conversation with a seemingly flesh and blood person. Others just have this creepy feeling that somebody's there and they keep whirling around and they swear they catch something out of the corner of their eye. Uh, physical stuff that could affect brain chemistry seems to be involved in this. It's often associated with hypothermia, your body temperature's going down, or your oxygen levels are low because you're at a high altitude, or there's just this monotonous lack of change in your sensory inputs that kind of lulls you into a, an altered state of consciousness. So there might be a physiological explanation in some situations, apart from lesions, tumors, or seizures. One's brain oxygen might be low. One might have a sudden flood of dopamine across multiple regions of the brain. Or maybe one's sensory systems are in overdrive, trying to find meaning in the monotony of life at sea. Or maybe life in a dark room. It's interesting to note that James's sensed presence experiences don't seem to be the norm. These others where someone is met with a helpful, comforting presence are more common, like what happens in Gravity. Sandra Bullock's character is about to end it all when the hatch opens and George Clooney's character pops in to give her a pep talk. The Chinese station's about 100 miles, just a little Sunday drive. We can't. Sure we can. There's no fuel. I tried everything. Well, there's always something we can do. I tried everything. I told Frank McAndrew about James's experience of a sensed presence that was not comforting or helpful. So I'd be interested to see or hear what your uh, friends got to say about his sense presences. The fact that they're not benign is interesting because that makes them different. While James's experiences might be a somewhat typical ghost story, it turns out that they are not that typical of a sensed presence experience among the scientifically recorded set of experiences. I've been interested in how a lot of the major religions have stories about their important figures, be it Jesus or Moses or the prophet Muhammad, going out into the desert alone after a period of fasting. And in each case, they encounter this supernatural being. Uh, you know, it's very consistent with what happens in these real situations. Muhammad's flight or hijra to Medina is in fact the beginning of the Muslim calendar, which marks years since the hijra or in Roman letters, A-H, similar to the Christian A-D or Anno Domini, year of the Lord. These mystical and paranormal experiences are central events in religions around the world. No wonder, therefore, that fasting is a central spiritual practice in a number of world religions. Frank McAndrew shared another experiment that ties more into his work on creepiness. Could this explain certain paranormal experiences? I don't know. Some other researchers have done some interesting things where they can get people to creep themselves out. Imagine I've got my finger in a little contraption that controls a robot arm, and the robot arm is behind me. Now, if I have it set up so that the robot arm does exactly what my finger is doing at the same time I'm doing it, so like if I push forward, it'll poke me in the back, so I'm essentially poking myself in the back at the same time. That doesn't creep me out. I kind of, it feels natural. But if you delay it a little bit, the person pushes the button, and then a little bit of time passes before the robot 
uh, hoax you, about a third of individuals get this weird, creeped out, sensed presence experience. It it activates something that uh, really kind of bowls people over. I'm not sure what naturalistic thing, what non-supernatural thing might trigger this, but it definitely suggests an avenue for future research into paranormal experiences. There are other possible psychophysiological explanations for paranormal experiences. There are subaudible sound waves, so typically a human can hear sound from about 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Just like light is only visible within a certain spectrum, sound waves are only audible within certain limits. But there are sound waves below and above that audible range, just like infrared and ultraviolet light. It turns out that humans sometimes have a reaction to sound waves below the audible limit, lower bass than we can hear. Add together the creeped out vibe from subliminal sound perception with any sort of ambiguity in our sensory input, and conditions are perfect. Conditions are perfect. For a paranormal experience. Another sort of explanation, which is perhaps the most vivid and widespread ghost experience, or at least the most widely discussed that I have seen, is the phenomenon of sleep paralysis and the associated visual experiences that sometimes go along with it. Again, Frank McAndrew. When you're in REM sleep, which I'm sure you know what that is, that's rapid eye movement sleep, the time of sleep when you're dreaming, one of the things that happens during REM sleep is you have a complete lack of muscle tone. You can't move. Um, if you pick somebody's arm up and you, they don't wake up, it's almost like it's made out of rubber or something. A person who has cataplexy uh, has these uh, uh, seizures where they collapse and they can't move at all. They can't even blink their eyes. They can't do anything. All right. Uh, if you're asleep and you're in REM sleep and suddenly you wake up, two different things are happening. One is for a couple of seconds, you may not be able to move at all because your muscles are completely in REM mode and it takes a little while for those to come back. And also you've been awakened right in the middle of a dream. So the images and the emotions and all of that associated with the dream are still very much in your consciousness. And you put those two things together, a person can really get creeped out if they don't really know what's going on. So that would, that would be my understanding of what's going on. Another possible explanation of sleep paralysis demons, one that I quite like actually, is that one's proprioception is thrown off by the paralysis, right? So proprioception is one's perception of one's own body and its position and movement. It's more or less literally means perception of oneself, where proprio is a reflexive pronoun meaning self or something similar to that. So if I tell my arm to move and it doesn't move, my brain will go to task trying to make sense of this. One possibility is it might project a figure into the room that is moving its arm. There might be a hallucination as of a demon or a ghost or the like that is doing the things your body is supposed to be doing. It's all part of your brain's attempt to try to keep a grip on the world around it and make sense of the external and internal inputs it's receiving. I find this explanation quite plausible. So we've covered a lot of the psychology of ghosts here. We talked about how our perceptual cognitive systems are built to resolve ambiguity, in particular to resolve ambiguity towards threats. This explains why we have more ghost experiences at night. Perception is just harder and more ambiguous at night. 
We talked about schematic errors and how experiences of people, quote-unquote, come for free when people are included in our schemas of a place or a task or the like, like a spouse having breakfast with you. This is especially true in memory, but our perceptual experience of the world is also somewhat constructive, and so hallucinations might partially be explained by schematic errors. We talked about physiological explanations like low oxygen, brain stimulation, or lesions, or whatever, like exhaustion and stress, and so on. Notice that, sort of as a matter of methodology, none of these explanations takes terribly seriously the possibility that there might actually be ghosts, that ghost experiences might be the result of an interaction between the experiencer and a supernatural entity. This is due in part to the fact that the natural sciences are just that, natural. They rule out supernatural explanations, if at all possible. They aren't the sort of study that's interested in the supernatural. If ghosts are real and interact with us, according to a natural scientist, then we must suppose that they themselves are natural entities. They must be thought of as part of nature and subject to the laws of nature. If they aren't, then science cannot describe everything that's real, and natural scientists tend to think that science can describe and explain any interaction that occurs in the world. All interaction, the natural scientist supposes, is natural. We'll get more into this when we discuss the metaphysics of ghosts. Let's take a quick break now and we'll talk about the epistemology of ghost experiences. During this break, I wanted to highlight one of probably one of the more popular philosophy podcasts. It's called The Partially Examined Life. And it's kind of like sitting in on a, a book group or a reading group. Um, and they, they cover a really impressive array of philosophy, including a lot of uh, what we might call continental philosophy and a lot of what we might call analytic philosophy and um, just just a, a lot of his, historical philosophy and the like. They're really good at sort of teasing out the implications of these views and you get a, a pretty deep dive into them. It's, you know, like I say, it's like sitting in on a, a reading group um, or a book group for uh, a couple of hours sometimes. And so if you if you really want to expand your philosophical knowledge, that's a, a nice way to do it, I think. And they're uh, nice guys to go on the journey with. I was originally interested in ghosts because they're a weird idea, right? Like the idea that ghosts are these beings, mostly mental sorts of beings that are disembodied, so they don't have any of the normal properties of being a physical embodied being. They don't interact with light in the same way, so they might be translucent. They don't interact with solid objects in the same way, so they might be able to travel through walls. But still, somehow, they seem to perceive us at least some of the time. So they have to be picking up on some photons, right? Um, they have to have physical eyes that get information from the photons bouncing around in our physical environment, right? But that's a bit inconsistent with the idea that they're disembodied. Maybe the idea is that they have special kinds of bodies but aren't really totally disembodied. There's only one kind of vision we know, and that involves interacting with the electromagnetic spectrum in the form of visible light radiation. There's also sonar, which involves sound waves, but say there is such a thing as a ghost, if they see us or our world at all, which they often seem to be able to do in people's stories, then they must have some physical presence so that they can collect information about the light or radiation or maybe sound waves 
in our mundane physical realm. Ghosts are super weird, especially if you're like me and you think being a person with a mind is intrinsically linked to having a body that behaves in a certain way and takes up information in a certain way. There just isn't much space in a worldview like mine for something like a ghost. But when people tell ghost stories, I get spooked, like chilled to the bone. There's a very deep part of me, my deep evolutionary primate brain, that believes in ghosts and is really freaked out that they might be following us, watching us, and generally violating our sense of privacy and security in our own homes. Philosophically, there are two principal reasons we might be interested in ghost stories. One is metaphysical, like I've just been describing. What are these things and how do they fit into the world we know and live in? The other interest in ghosts is epistemological. What do we make of people's testimonies to having experienced ghosts? Do we discount them? Do we psychologize them, as I explored in the first segment? Or do we believe them? Give them some credence, especially given that ghost encounters are so widespread. Does that give us extra reason for believing that these experiences reveal some part of reality? Let's discuss these epistemological issues first. Say your friend and you are out for a drink. It's sort of difficult to imagine these days um, in the pandemic, but think back to over a year ago when we used to get together with people outside our homes in public, no less. You're talking and you casually mention ghosts and your friend says, I've actually experienced a ghost before. Wait, what? You say, tell me about it. As your friend continues telling their story, you're faced with an uncomfortable dilemma. Believe your friend, who you believe to be a trustworthy individual and a generally good and reliable knower of things knowable. Or do you disbelieve your friend since what they're saying is inconsistent with what you believe about the world? The first epistemological problem presented by ghosts and ghost encounters is a problem related to the status of testimony. How do you trust the testimony of another when what they're saying contradicts things you take to be well-established? The same sort of issue arises for all sorts of paranormal phenomena. Aliens, ghosts, magic, monsters, and so on. How do we trust testimonies that run counter to our general understanding of how things fit together and what sorts of things exist? The first thing to ask is truly what do their experiences entail and how do we understand them? They testify that they've had a visual and tactile experience as of a person sitting on them or choking them or just watching them in their bed. Creepy, right? But what does it mean? Your friend can be telling the truth about their experience, that they had it, and it could all be in their heads. They could be hallucinating or something like that. Or they could be telling the truth about the experience, but misinterpreting the ontological significance of the experience. They could be claiming that it means that immaterial intelligences exist, but that's not what the experience entails at all. We'll get into these issues a little bit in the next section when we talk about metaphysics. But for now, it suffices to say that before we decide what to do about your friend's testimony, we'll need to get clear on what that testimony means and whether it's actually inconsistent with our general worldview. The second thing to ask is how trustworthy testimony in general is. Does this person generally possess the virtues or qualities that make them trustworthy knowers? Do they jump to conclusions and make quick, fallacious inferences? Or are they careful, self-critical, and circumspect? Do they educate themselves about a wide variety of topics using a wide variety of trustworthy sources? Or do they trust whatever their one leader, spiritual, philosophical, or political says? 
Do they trust every single thought and experience that jumps into their mind, or do they suspend belief and weigh new possibilities impartially? The third thing to ask is how you came to have the worldview you have. You must interrogate the foundations of your worldview if you're going to use that worldview to dismiss someone's testimony out of hand. If your view is physicalism, let's say, that all things that exist are physical things, then you need to understand why you're justified in believing physicalism and whether that belief is more justified than your friend's belief in the reality of their paranormal experiences. You'll have to be prepared to defend physicalism with better reasons than your friend can offer to defend the reality of their experiences. Physicalism isn't the only and probably isn't even the most defensible worldview that's inconsistent with ghosts, but this is just an example I'm using here. Psychologist Frank McAndrew again. And I think this would have to connect with religion again, too, because you do want your whole worldview to kind of make sense. So if you have a religion where you believe there are angels and devils and all kinds of other invisible spiritual things out there, well, of course, that's perfectly consistent with the spirits of dead people mixing in there uh, and something that's not inconsistent at all. On the other hand, if you don't think that any of these things are real, it's a real stretch for you to suddenly make this one exception. Okay, there are no angels or devils or other beings, but there are spirits of dead people out there. It, it, it's more cognitively challenging to do that. One of the reasons why little kids are so easily frightened by ghosts and spooky things is because they live in a world of tooth fairies and Santa Clauses and Easter bunnies. And if all of those things can exist, why not these scary things, uh, because it all makes sense in that way. So I do think the way you cognitively process information will be driven by what you believe in general. There's obviously a lot more to say here, but this is a set of questions we need to answer before we move further. Let me make one more note about science sort of in passing here. Science is inherently interested in the stable and general, and some might say universal. Therefore, phenomena that are unpredictable, dependent on a large amount of independent factors such that they're unstable or extremely rare, and so on, make for difficult subject matter for science. Because ghost encounters often seem to be as much about the person having the encounter as they are about the ghosts themselves, it is understandable why science might be a bad tool for studying them. Ghost encounters are not stable, universal, or predictable. Science is aimed at the stable, universal, and predictable, and so you do the math. Again, there's more to say here, but, but count this as the opening of a conversation rather than the final word. Personally, I find a lot of ghost stories really compelling, but few of them make me think that there must be immaterial or disembodied spirits roaming around. It's also inconsistent with my, my anthropology, my understanding of what it is to be human. So I trust that people have had the experiences they have, but I tend to be skeptical that there are in fact spirits causing these experiences. Either way, they're just super creepy, right? Let's take a break and then get into the metaphysics of ghosts. I wanted to use this break to introduce Philosophy the Classics, which is produced by Nigel Warburton. And it's basically uh, just an audiobook of his book, Philosophy the Classics. Uh, and it introduces you to 27 
key texts in the history of philosophy. And it's really nice. I've listened to it while on, on walks with, with my son. And uh, it's a nice way to um, just, again, fill in. It's a nice way to um, fill in my, my philosophical knowledge a little bit and get, gain a, a deeper understanding. And it's just a great intro to philosophy. Uh, so if you're, if you're just sort of interested in some of the classic texts in philosophy, check that out. The next set of issues that ghosts raise are metaphysical issues. How do we make sense of ghosts given the seeming fact that all of the things we see interacting do so in physical ways? How could we see a ghost if a ghost isn't a physical thing that reflects photons into our eyes? How could a ghost exist in a way that's consistent with our understanding of not only physics, but also biology, perceptual psychology, and so on? In short, how do ghosts fit into the natural world if they are supposed to be supernatural? It's made even trickier because ghosts lore isn't consistent about what ghosts are and what the rules of their existence is. Frank McAndrew again. Yeah, it is hard to make sense of it all. And it, and it gets even trickier because there are so many different rules for how ghosts behave. Some ghosts haunt individual people. So if you have a ghost haunting you, this ghost might show up in your dreams. Uh, you can be on vacation in another country and it pops up and scares you there. Uh, but then there are other ghosts that seem to be confined to a single location. Uh, it can be something as small as a room in a house or a location in a forest. And they're not out to haunt anybody in particular. They'll scare anybody that comes along. So some ghosts have a mission and they're kind of attached to individuals and others are attached to places in some way. Now, both of these, of course, defy physical explanation uh, in the way that we usually think about it. To explore this question, I thought it best to simply offer three possible answers. We can physicalize ghosts, we can neuropsychologize ghosts, or we can bite the bullet and say that ghosts are supernatural beings that can nevertheless affect and be affected by the natural world. So physicalizing ghosts, the first possibility is to make ghosts into physical phenomena. Frank J. Tipler has done something like this in the case of one really famous ghost, Jesus Christ Resurrected. The book is called The Physics of Christianity. Jesus was supposed to have a new body after the resurrection. It was supposed to be different from his old pre-crucifixion body. And it's unclear how, but the texts say it's not supposed to be the same. Tipler's hypothesis is that Jesus' resurrected body is made of weakly interacting neutrinos. Neutrinos are the enigmatic ghosts of the subatomic world. Neutrinos are particles that barely ever interact with other matter, and so a collection of them would be capable of some weird things. They can move through walls, be translucent, brighten and darken spontaneously, change in ways that a normal body couldn't, and so on. It could theoretically do lots of weird things because it's not an organic body made of the normal atoms that we think of, but instead it's just a collection of particles that can already interact or avoid interaction with the matter around them. Maybe ghosts are collections of neutrinos? This perhaps raises far more questions than it answers, though. Do they have a mind, and if so, does that mind arise out of the activity of the neutrino brain? It's maybe not strictly impossible for a collection of neutrinos to act together in concert in this way, but um, it's quite odd and wildly improbable. What gives? Are they being coordinated by God or by ghost minds? 
If the latter, then we haven't really explained how there could be disembodied minds. We just sort of give them a new kind of shell to live in. My understanding of what it is to be a mind renders this still impossible. I don't believe in disembodied minds. A neutrino body would have to be a full-on body and not merely a shell for a ghostly spirit to use. A very different way to physicalize ghosts is to hypothesize that they are beings of another dimension. This is loose talk, though. What we mean when we say another dimension is actually, as far as I can tell, a different location on a dimension we're not used to thinking in terms of. Quickly, here's how dimensions work. Hello. A zero-dimension object is a point. It doesn't have any length, width, depth, etc. It's arguably not even really, like, physically possible. One. A one-dimensional object is a line. It has no height or depth, only length. A world with only one dimension would be pretty odd. You'd be stuck in the order you're in with no hope of ever changing that. The person to your left and the person to your right will always be there because there's no way to swap places with people. There's no moving around someone else or switching places. You'd be in one segment of the line and you can only move left or right, no up or down, no forward or back. An example of a two-dimensional object is a square. So if you're in a two-dimensional space, maybe like a, a game called a platformer, like the original Mario Brothers game, you can move forwards and backwards and jump up and down, but the world has no depth, no left and right. Three. We're all familiar with the three-dimensional space we all live our lives in, or at least as far as our perceptual experience is concerned. A three-dimensional object, for example, is a cube. You have left, right, up, down, forward, and back, right, or length, width, and height. Greater than. But what about if we add more dimensions? We exist in this three-dimensional world, but imagine that we lived in a two-dimensional world like Mario, left and right, up and down. Now imagine that Mario's world actually has three dimensions. He just can't access the depth dimension at all. That's a sort of analogy with the idea that our three-dimensional world could in fact have four spatial dimensions. In fact, string theory has it that there are like 13 spatial dimensions, but we'll ignore that for now. If we're like Mario and we can only go forward and back, up and down, what if we could move left and right? Well, we'd be somewhere totally different than in our two-dimensional world, yes. Things might change radically really quickly. We might move left and suddenly be in a totally different realm that exists parallel to our, our video game world, our, our two-dimensional platformer world. This is what people sometimes mean when they talk about parallel dimensions. The Netflix show Stranger Things does a nice job. They call it the upside down. Imagine we live on a hose, but we didn't know how to circumnavigate the surface of the hose. So our our world is just on one line on, on the top of the hose, right? If we found a portal that could move us left and right around the hose, then we might end up upside down. We might end up in an upside down realm on the underside of the hose. Okay, so ghosts might be special kinds of beings that live in a parallel dimension. That is at a different coordinate in a dimension that we can't travel along like left and right for Mario or the upside down in Stranger Things. They can occasionally move left and right and appear briefly in our part of the four-dimensional world but spend most of their time in their own part of the four-dimensional world, like, you know, limbo or something like that. That's a different way to make ghosts into something physical, but nevertheless quite different from ordinary physical objects. 
neuralized ghosts. The second answer I can think of involves actually denying that there's any physical manifestation of ghosts in the way that you might first think. There's no publicly perceptible figure out there in the world, just experiences had by individual human beings. If there were ever a situation where multiple people had the same or similar experiences of a spirit, then that would be explained by coordinated neurological disturbances. On this hypothesis, ghosts are embodied in neural impulses and the like, just things happening neuropsychologically in individual skulls. Sort of like hallucinations, but without the implication that all hallucinations are delusions of some kind. On this answer, ghosts are real, and they are more or less non-physical, but they are embodied as neurological activity or as experiences in the minds of the living. Think about it this way, does the USA exist? Well, yeah, of course it does. But where is it? Well, we might first think that it's the land between Canada and Mexico, but that's not right. The land predates America and will still likely exist when the USA has dissolved into warlord fiefdoms. Right? The USA is more than the land it inhabits. It's also more than the people. It's a set of institutions and rules and documents and traditions and practices and beliefs and physical places and buildings and the like. But it's also none of these things. The relationship between the USA and all of these activities, practices, places, buildings, institutions, and the like, is what I like to call a relation of embodiment. The USA is embodied in these things, but it doesn't reduce down to these things. A university is embodied in a set of buildings and procedures and people, but the university is something over and above just those policies, procedures, and buildings and the like. Gilbert Ryle, an early 20th century philosopher, made this sort of point. The university doesn't exist in the same way a building exists, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It might be the same with ghosts. They exist, but not in the same way that tables and chairs and dogs and humans exist. They are embodied in neurological impulses in human brains, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a sort of autonomous existence apart from the minds of those humans. They need a sort of principle of unity like the USA has or like a university has or like we have even though we're embodied in these complex organic bodies. I kind of like this approach, but it's maybe unsatisfying, right? A hallmark of ghost stories seems to be that one person can see ghosts while others cannot. So this neuropsychologizing of ghosts is good at capturing that feature. But can it capture the sense that people have that ghosts are out there in the world. It seems that ghosts are supposed by believers to be publicly accessible beings, even though many simply don't have the ability to see them. Bees can see ultraviolet light and we can't, so maybe it's the same with ghosts, right? The more we go down this route, the more we should go in for the first answer I discussed, physicalizing ghosts. But if that doesn't sound right, and if we still want to capture the ideas that ghosts are out there in the public world, then we might bite the bullet. Biting the bullet. The third answer I can think of is simply to bite the bullet and claim more or less exactly what we are told to believe by certain religions, by popular culture, and by personal stories. Ghosts are supernatural, non-physical beings. They are able to interact with the physical world or manipulate the physical world in active and passive ways, but they themselves aren't physical beings. 
On this account, ghosts are the same sort of thing in the sense that they fit into the world in the same way as angels do in uh, Judeo-Christian mythology. They themselves do not have physical bodies, and they aren't essentially embodied in the way that living human beings are, but they can sometimes have bodies as a sort of shell they inhabit. They can similarly interact with the physical world in different ways without themselves being inherently physical. I have a hard time making sense of this proposal, to be honest. I can't understand what it is for a being to have cognition that doesn't involve being embodied and embrained. I can't understand what it is to perceive something, let's say visually, that doesn't involve being bombarded with photons and detecting their frequencies using a physical apparatus like a retina. I can't understand what it is to move a physical body without a physical cause. That's telekinesis, and I think that either doesn't make any sense at all or utilizes some sneaky physical cause, like brainwaves or the like. I don't get what it is to be a disembodied mind, and I don't get what it is for a disembodied spirit to control the physical world or part thereof. Maybe this is a failure of imagination on my part, but as I think through the possibilities, I just can't make heads or tails of it that doesn't end up positing some woo-woo quote-unquote energy that sounds like shorthand for I don't know, but I want to believe anyways. And that's fine, you're welcome to your beliefs, but to me it just doesn't make much sense. The physical world is the world of interaction, the public realm where we all give and take from one another. Without that physical realm, I don't see there being any interaction. At best, we can just hope that God has coordinated everything perfectly. Leibniz, whom we discussed in Monad 1, believes something like this. There is no real interaction, but it's cool because God coordinates everything, so it is as if there is real interaction. Leibniz was also a sort of idealist in that he doesn't truly believe in a physical realm in the way I've described it, a realm where physical things interact with one another using physical mechanisms to cause physical changes in one another. I want to avoid the kind of idealism that Leibniz goes in for. So, to summarize this segment, there are three options I can identify for making sense of how ghosts fit into the physical world around us. You can physicalize ghosts, you can neuralize or psychologize ghosts, or you can bite the bullet and claim that ghosts are exactly what we've been led to believe, non-physical beings that nevertheless have some influence in the physical world. Okay, so we've covered some of the ways that psychologists go about trying to make sense of paranormal experiences. We covered what sort of questions arise when your friend starts talking about ghosts and you yourself has a worldview that's incompatible with ghosts. And then I covered a couple of possible solutions to the problem of how to fit ghosts into a physical world. I want to close by bringing this back to the personal. After all, most of the people who believe in ghosts, I would venture a guess, believe in ghosts because they or a loved one have experienced them. My partner and my recent Halloween tradition has been to listen to Spooked, produced by the Snap Judgment folks. It's so good and so spooky and pretty compelling. It's already a little tricky to dismiss these experiences out of hand when they're strangers on a podcast, but it's even harder to write them off when they're coming from friends of yours, people you trust and care about. In that vein, in case you thought that we were done with James, here are two more stories from his adolescence. Each involves another person, and so it might be a little bit harder to dismiss this as all in his head. I'll let you draw your own conclusions here. But one of the big, more consistent things is other physical experiences such as uh, touch. 
there would be times at night when I would feel uh, what felt like three fingertips kind of start just above my eyebrow, um, usually on my right or side because I would sleep on the left to face the wall. Um, and I would feel what would feel like three fingers kind of stroke down from just above my eyebrow down to my chin. Um, and they were icy cold. And it wasn't just a solid, you know, just full area that side of my face getting cold. Um, there was separation between it. It was very thin lines that would go down, which is why I kind of attune it to fingertips because it's exactly what it would feel like when your hands naturally open and just you stroke it down your face. And to go along with that story, I had uh, one of my best friends spend the night one time with me in high school. Um, and I remember it was just entering summer, so it was getting pretty warm, um, but not too bad to like cause you sweat or nights to be awful. And the next day he came to me and he knew that I had had experiences in my house. I hadn't told him in all too many details, a lot of things that I experienced. And the one thing he told me is that throughout the night, he had this very strange feeling as he was sleeping, as if like something was there. And what he made sure to really emphasize is how stagnant the air had been because we hadn't opened this room in so long, you know, the air had been, it was just kind of stale and thick, but uh, it wasn't that that was bothering him. It was at one point at night, he had um, a very, very cold sensation uh, stroke across his face that he couldn't explain. And he was like, I didn't have anything that would push air around, like no ceiling fan, the AC hadn't turned on, nothing to like move the air around. And I asked, I reached out and I um, put uh, three fingers on his forehead just above his eyebrow like I had experienced and stroked down his face and asked him, I was like, did it feel like this? And he got really shooken and pale. And he said it felt exactly like that and extremely cold at the same time. And I hadn't explained to him that those were some of the things that I was experiencing too. So it was very interesting for me to have someone outside of myself and outside of my family say, yeah, I experienced something. And he was very uncomfortable with it and did not want to return to my house for a while. Here's the second story. It sounds like something straight out of Hill House. This happened when James was already in college, but still living at home. His younger brother was still in high school and had the room next to his. I remember being at my desk in my room on my laptop writing a paper for some college assignment. And I had headphones on while I was listening to, it was music or like YouTube in the background, uh, something that will just help me keep focus. And at this time, uh, my door is closed. There's no fans, no like AC unit running. His younger brother is in the bathroom just on the other side of the wall from James's bedroom. So I could hear him running the sink and brushing his teeth and getting ready for bed. And as I'm writing this paper, all of a sudden I start hearing uh, banging on my door, really, really loud banging. And I'm kind of ignoring it, kind of keeping an eye on it. I'm thinking, you know, it's my little brother. 
he's probably bored and wants attention. You know, he probably just wants to mess with me or something. I need to get this paper done. I'm just going to ignore him. And so I continue for a few more minutes just typing my paper all while this banging is going on really bad. And I'm starting to get concerned. It's like, what is this? And annoyed. <laughs> um, I'm definitely getting annoyed at it. So at this point, I stop writing the paper and I'm just watching my door. I turn my seat and I'm watching my door thinking any moment now he's just going to open the door and just annoy me, like say something that will annoy me and just be a little brat or something. And I'm watching my door and there's all this thudding and banging. And at this point, you know, it sounds like someone's going at it with two fists and just pounding really, really hard. And eventually I'm starting to see my door actually shake a bit as if someone's hitting it from the other side. And not long after that, probably a few seconds after not doing anything about that, there's kicking at the bottom of my door and it's very violent and very rapid and I'm starting to see my door bending inwards into my room and I'm hearing cracks as if the wood's breaking and it was at this point I had just kind of had enough I'm freaking out a little bit you know thinking what in the world is he doing he wouldn't make this much noise just to annoy me because he wouldn't want to get in trouble with my parents. He wouldn't risk that. And um, I'm hearing my door crack, and I'm just thinking, he's going to break my door down. Like, what in the world is going on? So I just shout um, as loud as I was like, stop. Stop it. Um, as soon as I said that, it, everything stopped. The noise stopped. The door wasn't making any cracks. Uh, wasn't being pounded on. Nothing. Or everything stopped. And then all of a sudden I see the doorknob slowly turn itself and the door pushes itself open and there's nobody on the other side. And I'm just all sorts of confused. I'm angry, I'm thinking that's way too far to go with like being attention needy or something like he just went too far and I get up from my chair and I storm into his room which is straight across from my room and I burst into his room his lights are off he's in bed so I flick them on I just start reeling into him just yelling like what in the world are you thinking like you've gone way too far this time that's not funny you almost broke my door down like Mom and dad are going to be furious. We're both going to get in trouble. Um, as, I, as I'm just frantically yelling at him, he's getting really, really pale and his eyes are like getting really wide. Like he is scared um, of how mad I am. Um, and as I'm still yelling at him too and kind of just seeing his reaction, I kind of stop for a bit. I start thinking, I was like, you know, definitely sounded and looked like he was pounding and kicking on my door definitely heard my door um, cracking the door opened but judging from the distance from my door frame through the hallway into his room all hardwood floor from the hallway and his room his door being shut tight the lights being off and him in bed under his sheets he would have had to have done a full-out mad sprint 
and would have made a ton of noise um, from just his feet hitting the hardwood, the hardwood creaking. He would have had to slam his door really hard because his door doesn't shut very easily and get into his bed and compose himself. There is just no chance that within the like eight seconds from my door fully opening to me bursting into his room that he could have done any of that. I remember just looking at him and just saying, did you do this? Did you do any of what I'm talking about? And he generally responds, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm really freaked out right now. I don't know what's going on. And I just looked at him. And I was just like, forget it. Just ignore everything I said. I'm freaked out. As soon as he says that, I'm just going, oh, my God, this is not him. This was not him at all. There's no one else besides my parents in the house and they went to bed. I just looked at him and I was like, I'm really, really sorry. I'm going to bed. Just try to go back to sleep. And I turned his light off. I closed his door and I went back to my room and I was just shaken and in a cold sweat. I just put my laptop down, <laughs> turned the lights off and crawled into bed and just kind of like fetal positioned in my bed and I was like I just need to sleep I want this to be over already and not long after that all of a sudden um, I started hearing noise at my door again and I'm like I feel my soul <laughs> leave my body just thinking oh no here it comes again I cannot take this anymore and I was just freaking out there had never been something this violent before and the door slowly turns and opens again but this time it's my brother and he uh he just kind of looks at me and asks if he can spend the night in my room because he's really really scared about all the things that i told him and our relationship it was kind of rocky because you know we were both just at that uncomfortable edgy teen <laughs> boys butting heads all the time so for him to be so shaken up and to just kind of like swallow his pride or whatever it may be and to ask if he could spend the night with me like we did when we were kids i knew this was something that was really really troubling him and so we ended up spending that night just together sleeping and trying to calm ourselves down Thank you so much to James and Diane and their family for letting me produce their stories. You know who you are. Thank you also to Frank McAndrew and Casey Smith for lending us their expertise. Thank you so much to our patrons. Currently, that includes Peter Sugia and Barbara Sweer, Kui Gray Lavin, Rafa Smith, Oystein Johansson, Ben and Annalisa Colahan, Robert Jones, Owen Roth, Luke and Courtney Adams, and Connor Hughes. If you'd like to join these heroes of podcast funding, even for just like 50 cents or a dollar a month, head over to patreon.com slash reductio. There's a link in the show notes. Please also rate and review us on iTunes. This is a huge help, especially if you write a review and the link is in the show notes as well. You know, a lot of people have heard of North African Roman philosopher St. Augustine of Hippo, but very few people have heard of this really interesting passage where he says, 
porcelain dolls are just creepy. I don't think anyone will deny that they're creepy and it had this red dress with like white frills and it would just like dead cold stare like straight to where I'm sleeping and it was always uncomfortable. I hated, hated that doll. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.